0: Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come now before you to hear you speak to us through your holy word. Grant us an eagerness to listen, and a desire to know you more, and an open heart to understand what you would say to us. For man does not live on bread alone, but rather by every word that comes from your mouth, O oh Lord. May we Not merely subsist, but even feast on your word of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. If you'll please open your Bibles to our sermon text this morning, Colossians 1, 1 through 8, uh, page 983 in the Pew Bibles. We're starting the study of a new book this morning. Paul's letter to the Colossians. So Colossians 1, 1 through 8. So here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. The season of spring is a time when nature is emerging Out of the slumber of winter. As the blossoms bloom, the world comes to new life. In the springtime, we see a promise of new fruitfulness all around us. After the heat wave we've had this past week, it may seem to you like we skipped spring altogether, but I assure you we are in the midst of spring. And you can tell when you look around and you see the grass growing, the blossoms covering the trees, the flowers starting to bloom. In this season of newness, it's appropriate that we're starting a study of a new book of the Bible, Paul's letter to the Colossians. And as we'll see this morning, this theme of new life, of bearing fruit, of increasing stands at the very center of the passage we're looking at this morning, for this is what the gospel does as it goes out. It bears fruit and increases in the whole world. This morning, we'll begin with a bit of introduction to the letter, considering the background and Paul's reason for writing, which will also answer the key question for us. Why study this letter? What do we hope to gain from it? What will we be learning and seeing as we look at Paul's letter to the Colossians? And we'll look at the opening two verses, the greeting, and what do we learn from that? And after that, we'll look at Paul's prayer of thanksgiving and see how this is an example that teaches us to always give thanks to God. Thanksgiving centered on the gospel, which bears fruit and flourishes wherever it goes. So let's begin with a little bit of a background introduction to this letter. You know of Paul as the great missionary evangelist who traveled throughout the Roman Empire founding churches. And then his letters were later written to encourage and strengthen and sometimes correct those churches. But Colossians is one of... Only two of Paul's letters written to a church he had not started himself. He had not even visited. The other one is Romans, which just so happens to be the last letter we study together. But even in the church in Rome, Paul knew many of the people there, which you can see by looking at that long list of greetings at the conclusion of the letter. But that's not the case here in Colossae. He seems to know only a very few So how had this church come to be, and why was Paul writing to them? A church was founded by a man named Epaphras, whom Paul calls a fellow worker, a minister of Christ who had preached the gospel to them. So Paul knew Epaphras. He may have even been a convert of Paul's own ministry. And since he was from Colossae himself, he had taken the gospel home. He had preached the good news, and by God's grace, a church grew up around him. Colossae was a city in a region called Phrygia in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which today we would call modern-day Turkey. It was located in the Lycus River Valley. It had been the chief city of that region, but now it was being surpassed in prominence by another city nearby Laodicea. It's another city you'll see mentioned several times in the letter, and we also see that Epaphras had also been at work in that nearby city and the other city nearby Hierapolis. Now, as a Greco-Roman city, it was primarily filled with Gentiles, and this would have probably been a primarily Gentile church. We also know there was a synagogue there, and a good number of the Jewish dispersion there as well. Now, the occasion for the letter is that Paul has heard a report from Epaphras of God's grace among the Colossians, and so he is stirred to write to them. And Paul will ask the Colossians at the end of the letter To remember his chains. And so most scholars believe that Paul is writing from his Roman imprisonment about 62 AD. He learns about the state of this church. He cannot go to them. He's imprisoned. But he can write to them. So what are his main purposes? As he writes. He writes on one hand to encourage them. To build them up. To strengthen them in their faith. As we read we'll also see that Paul is deeply concerned that they may be led astray. By false teaching. There's a problem in this church of false teachers who are denigrating Christ, of making less of him, of saying that you need other things besides Christ. You need to worship angels. You need to practice asceticism. You need special visions. And Paul will make clear you don't need all these extras. But his chief response is not to turn them aside from these extras, but to just put the focus on Christ, to magnify his greatness, to exalt his preeminence, and to show his all-sufficiency in all things. And while there's many more things in this letter, I would say that this, this is the very heartbeat of Paul's letter to the Colossians, the preeminence and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's Simply put, why this letter is worth studying, that you might grow in your knowledge of your Savior to know that he is enough. Christ is all you need for this life and the next. As you prepare for this study, to get ready, to get excited for what is ahead, I would encourage you, perhaps this afternoon, perhaps in the coming week, take some time, read through the whole letter, even read it out loud. It'll take you only about 15 minutes. It's a short letter, but it is filled with the supremacy and the all-sufficiency of your Savior. So with that introduction in mind, let's look at the greeting in the first two verses. Now, in the opening verse, Paul is adapting the letter-writing customs of his day, and he always adapts them to his own purposes. Now, today we often open the letter with the person we're writing to, dear so-and-so. And then the author will sign his name all the way at the bottom, all the way at the end of the letter. But here we see that according to the custom of his day, Paul opens the letter by first stating the author who is writing. And in fact, we might be more used to seeing this, not in a letter, but in an email. When you open an email, you always see who sent it to you before you open the email. So that's where we might see this today. And so we read, Paul An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Paul here gives not only his name, but also his credentials. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, this term apostle means one who is sent a messenger. But in the New Testament, this is also a very technical term for an office in the church. For those who have been personally called by the risen Lord Jesus Christ, as eyewitnesses to the resurrection, as those who have been set apart as his official representatives, who are to proclaim the gospel and lay the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2.20. And we see how the Lord Jesus called him to this service in Acts chapter 9. And it was most certainly not something that Paul was seeking. As Paul writes here, it was only by the will of God only by the grace of God, for he was a persecutor of the church. And yet Paul was suddenly transformed by the power of God, by the will of God, to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And since he was called to this role, not by his own will, but by God's, since he is a representative of Christ Jesus, he's not writing this letter on his own authority, but by the authority, with the authority of Jesus Christ. And this applies to his original audience, but... Also to us as we study this letter today, this is the very word of God written by his apostle and inspired by the Holy Spirit. His authority as an apostle also helps with the question of how will he write this letter to a church that doesn't even know him? How will the Colossians receive this letter from this man they do not know? we will also see how he writes with great tenderness and love with care, with encouragement for the church. Although he will also warn them to watch out for this false teaching that is threatening them. But even those warnings, they flow from his love for them. As he's giving the author who it's from, Paul also mentions his fellow worker Timothy here. He's also included in this opening greeting. He's also included in the opening greeting of several of Paul's other letters. Now, although Timothy is in the, in the byline, so to speak, this doesn't necessarily mean that Timothy contributes much in terms of co-writing the letter, although it is quite likely that he was the scribe who wrote this letter down. We know from the final verse of the book where Paul writes a closing greeting in his own hand that Paul used a scribe to write the letter down as he dictated the words aloud. And so Timothy may likely have been that scribe. As you know, Timothy was Paul's fellow worker, his spiritual son in the faith, to whom Paul wrote two letters that are included in the New Testament. So Timothy is included, especially in the opening Thanksgiving, as one who gives thanks alongside Paul. That the primary author of the letter is the Apostle Paul himself. Next, we see the recipients. Paul is writing to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, And he calls them here first saints, that is, the holy ones, those who have been made holy, set apart to the Lord because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Remember here that a saint is not just a super Christian, it's not reserved for the select few like in the Roman Catholic Church, but it is a description of every believer. You are holy because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Next, Paul calls them faithful brothers, And that's in the general sense, including both men and women, brothers and sisters. And by calling them brothers and sisters right after calling Timothy our brother, he's emphasizing that the church is a family. We are knit together through our union with Christ. The Christ who prayed that we would be one even as he and the Father are one. That we would be one family, one body in Christ. And this is why Paul then follows this with two locations, we could say. Two ways of identifying his recipients in verse 2. This is the address. Who is he sending this to? First, spiritually, they are those who are in Christ. This is their spiritual location. It is because they are in Christ that they are saints. They are faithful. They have become one family. Secondly, they are at Colossae. A physical location. Now, of course, this is where the congregation is located. But even the mention of this, it's a reminder that every believer must be part of a local congregation where they live. So these were the brothers and sisters who were physically in Colossae, but far more important to their identity is that spiritually they are in Christ. And we have the greeting. Customary, bland, greeting in Greek is chairein. greetings, it's usually translated. But in a play on words, Paul cleverly replaces kairin with charis. It's very similar, but it means instead of greetings, grace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is more than a simple greetings, a simple hello. Paul here is pronouncing a blessing from the Lord upon the recipients of this letter. And he does so with his apostolic authority. Verse, he speaks of the grace of God. As J.I. Packer explains it so well in his classic book, Knowing God, the grace of God is love freely shown to guilty sinners, contrary to their merit and indeed in defiance of their demerit. It is God showing goodness to persons who deserve only severity and had no reason to expect anything but severity. So he gives grace, and next he blesses them with peace, which, of course, would hearken back to the Hebrew concept of shalom. Now, this shalom, of course, it includes peace, reconciliation with God, which we have received through Jesus Christ, but it is far more than simply a cessation of hostility. It is also a holistic flourishing that flows out of our relationship with God. And Paul says these blessings, they come from God our Father. It's a reminder that God has adopted us as his children because of the work of Jesus Christ. He has poured out into our hearts the spirit of sonship by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So you see all the richness and depth contained even here in this simple greeting. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, as Paul pronounces this blessing upon his readers. that's the opening greeting of the letter. And then after that, Paul, just as he does in almost all his letters, he moves immediately into a prayer of thanksgiving for his readers. Writing in verse three, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And what a beautiful example this is for us, how Paul is overflowing with thanksgiving for this church, a church he has never been to, for people he has never met. And yet he is overflowing with thanksgiving for the wonderful work that God is doing in their midst. As we see how Paul is giving thanks to God, it can motivate us to consider what a joy-filled Christian Paul must be when he is constantly giving thanks. And not just for the good things the Lord is doing in his own life, but as we will see in this prayer of thanksgiving, he is giving thanks for the good things God is doing in the lives of others all around the world. He is always giving thanks to God and his thanks revolve around three gospel themes for the gospel fruit, for the gospel seed, which bears this fruit and for gospel ministers who sow this seed. And so as we look at Paul's prayer of thanksgiving for the powerful work of the gospel in the midst of the Colossians, let this drive us to always give thanks for the gospel at work in our lives and in the lives of others as well. The first thing Paul thanks God for is the fruit of the gospel as it is displayed in the lives of the Colossians. We always thank God, he writes, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now perhaps you've noticed this same triad of virtues. It's the same triad as in 1 Corinthians 13. So now faith, hope, and love Abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love, faith, hope, and love. These three are commonly called the cardinal Christian virtues, and they're found together not only here and in 1 Corinthians 13, but in all seven times in Paul's letters. Yes, they are virtues, but here I want to speak of them as fruit because they are produced by the gospel at work in a person's life. Paul first gives thanks here for their faith in Christ Jesus. And perhaps of the three, this is the one that you might be least likely to think of as a fruit of the gospel. But think about it. This is the very first fruit of the gospel seed. As we saw earlier in Romans 10, verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is the very first fruit the gospel produces in a person's life. And it is the foundational fruit, for by grace you have been saved through faith, Ephesians 2.8. It's only after you receive God's grace through faith in Christ, after you have received this salvation through faith, that other spiritual fruit then follows and blossoms and blooms in a person's life. Now later in the letter, one of Paul's chief purposes will be to strengthen the Colossians in their faith, to keep them from swerving from their faith in Christ, to continue steadfast in him, But here he begins by simply giving thanks for their faith. Now, second, Paul gives thanks for the love you have for all the saints. For Paul, it's faith alone that saves, faith alone that justifies. But that faith that saves, it never remains alone. It always works itself out in love. And that's exactly what we see here among the Colossians. In particular, Paul highlights their love for all the saints, for all, all their brothers and sisters in Christ. He'll bring it up again in verse 8, speaking of how Paphras had told him about their love in the Spirit. Now, In the gospel, we come to know about God's love for us, his incalculable love in sending his own son to die for our sin. In Romans 5, 5, Paul writes, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love working in the heart of a believer, it transforms us. It, it, it works so that we respond not only in love for God, but also in love for one another. Here we can't help but think of Jesus' words after he humbled himself and washed his disciples' feet in John 13, where he said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This love that we have for one another, it's one mark of a true believer, one evidence that the gospel has truly been planted and taken root because you can see this fruit in a believer's life. And Paul, he saw this fruit in the Colossians and he gave thanks. Third, Paul gives thanks because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Perhaps you've heard before that biblical hope, it's not just a wish, it's not just a dream, it's not a maybe, someday, possibly. Rather, it is based on a future certainty. And that's certainly true in general, it's true here. But if you look closely at the, Paul, at the words Paul has written here, you'll notice the word hope It doesn't refer here to an inner attitude of hope, whether it's certain or uncertain, but here he's talking about the actual reality that is awaiting us in the future. In other words, you could substitute the word hope here with the word inheritance, and inheritance laid up for you in heaven. In fact, in the opening of 1 Peter, Peter's talking about the same thing, and he puts hope and inheritance side by side. He writes, he has caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, 1 Peter three one three 3 3-5. Now Paul just introduces the concept of this hope laid up in heaven here as he's giving thanks, but he will describe it in this way when he gets to chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is Paul's way of speaking about our glorious future resurrection and the life to come in the new heavens and the new earth. At the return of Christ, this is our future hope. And so Paul, he gives thanks for these three things, for the faith, the hope, the love of the Colossians, the fruit of the gospel at work in their lives. So I ask you, do you give thanks to God as you see the wonderful fruit of the gospel, the fruit the gospel is bearing in your life and not only in your life, but in the life of others around you? Now from this focus on the fruit, Paul takes He next uh, takes one step back to give thanks not for the fruit of the gospel, but for the gospel itself. The simple fact that it is bearing fruit. And so he writes in verse 5b, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. The phrasing here, it's a little awkward in the English, but clearly Paul is continuing the thought from their hope. Where did they get that hope from? From the gospel, which Paul describes as A word of truth. A word of truth, this phrase, it emphasizes the complete reliability of the good news of Jesus Christ. It is true because it is from God, and it comes with his trustworthiness and authority. In a letter which Paul will be so concerned about false teaching, it should stand out that Paul introduces the gospel as the word of truth. Paul then continues to describe this gospel, verse six, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Here we see Paul giving thanks for this wonderful gospel. It's bearing fruit among the Colossians as they heard it and understood it. We already saw some of the fruit in the previous verses, but in verse 10, Paul will speak of how it's bearing fruit in every good work and how they are increasing in the knowledge of God. But this gospel, it's not just transforming the Colossians. This same gospel, it's also going out to the whole world. It's bearing fruit to the ends of the earth. As Paul here speaks of the gospel bearing fruit and increasing in the whole world, he's actually making a subtle allusion to Genesis 1.28. When God blessed Adam and Eve and gave them the very first commandment in scripture saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This is often called the creation mandate. It's given just after mankind is created in the image of God. This is not just about population growth, but about filling the earth with those who represent God by reflecting his glorious image But then when Adam and Eve fell into sin, the image of God is corrupted in them. The commandment remains in effect, but it is, and it's even restated after the flood, but it can no longer be fulfilled as God originally intended it. But then we see something new with God's covenant with Abraham. The creation mandate is transformed from a commandment into a promise and a blessing. God promises Abraham that he will make him fruitful that he will cause him to increase and multiply, that his descendants will number like the stars in the heaven and like the sand on the seashore. And we see an initial fulfillment of this by the time Israel settles in Egypt before the Exodus. In Exodus 1-7, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. But what Paul is talking about here is not just a physical fruitfulness and increase, but rather a spiritual fruitfulness and increase of the gospel. And this fruitfulness does not belong to the first creation, to the first Adam, but rather it is the greater work of the second and last Adam, Jesus Christ, it is the new creation breaking into the world. This is now a greater fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, because as the gospel goes forth, Those who hear and believe it become sons of Abraham until he has sons and daughters from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people of the earth, as numerous as the stars of heaven and the sand on the seashore. And through this gospel, the curse is reversed. The image of God within man is also being renewed, as Paul will write later in this letter. You have put off the old man, referring to Adam with its practices, and have put on the new man, Referring to Jesus Christ, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, Colossians 3, 9 through 10. And so as the gospel goes forth, bearing fruit and increasing, the whole world is being filled with those who belong to Jesus Christ. Who participate in the new creation, who are sons of God being renewed after the image of his son. No wonder Paul is giving thanks. What about you? Is your heart filled with gratitude for the gospel? How it bears fruit and increases in your life, in your church, and around the world? Are you always giving thanks to God, the gospel seed, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Paul rounds out this section of thanksgiving by writing about the man who preached the gospel to the Colossians. Verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Of course, I already gave away this part of the story earlier, but Paul is giving thanks for this gospel minister. He calls him both our beloved fellow servant and a faithful minister of Christ. He was God's chosen instrument through which they had heard the good news. And this is how God works to sow the gospel seed through those who go out to proclaim the good news. As we read earlier in Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? But Epaphras was one who had answered God's call to go, to preach the gospel. And in his case, he went to his own hometown. And because he went, this church was planted, and it grew. Now, his preaching was the ordinary means. Preaching can seem so ordinary sometimes, and yet it is powerful. And the Lord used it to bring the Colossians to himself. We also see that As a faithful minister, he didn't just preach once and leave the Colossians to fend for themselves, but we learn from chapter 4 that he worked hard for them. He was always struggling for them in his prayers. And we don't know this for sure, but he may have even gone to Paul specifically to get help for the church, to seek the aid of the apostle on their behalf. And so Paul here is not just giving thanks, he's also reassuring the Colossians that they receive the true and full gospel from Epaphras, the same one that he preaches, the same one that is going out around the world, the only gospel that saves. And so they don't need to add anything to it from these false teachers. This is all they need. Jesus Christ is all that they need. And so Paul constantly gives thanks to God for Epaphras, this faithful minister of the gospel. And Paul here is an example for us to give thanks to God for those who preach the good news to us. As we step back and we consider this whole prayer of thanksgiving, we see how it is all centered upon one thing, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul gives thanks for the gospel itself, how it is bearing fruit and increasing, and he gives thanks for the fruit it produces and for those who proclaim it. Now We're gathered here this morning because this same gospel has been passed down through the generations. It has come around the world so that it has come to us here today in Hackett Sound, New Jersey in 2023. It is still bearing fruit and increasing as it is proclaimed by ministers of Christ here and throughout the whole world today. For this we should give thanks. We should rejoice in the Lord both for his work here in our midst and around the globe. And as we see in Paul, he gives thanks not only for God's grace among those whom he knows personally, but even for this church he had never met. And so as you hear the news of the gospel advancing, even on the mission field, on faraway places, give thanks to God for his life-giving gospel. Christ's kingdom is advancing. The new creation is breaking into this world and we rejoice to be a part of this. And so let us always give thanks to God our Father through his son Jesus Christ for this glorious and fruitful gospel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise. For the good news of Jesus Christ, that you have sent your only begotten Son to take on flesh, to live a perfect, sinless life, to die in our place on the cross, bearing our sins, and to rise again and reign forever. We thank you that you have given us the gift of faith to embrace Christ. We thank you that this gospel seed is being scattered to the ends of the earth, that others might hear and believe and receive forgiveness and eternal life in him. Help us, Lord, to be always giving thanks, walking in humble obedience, and to be filled with love for you and for one another. And may we be strengthened to persevere through our hope laid up for us in heaven. Lord, we pray that we would glorify you in all that we think and do and say, for we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.